Today we're going to continue on in Proverbs chapter 18. Uh, we have seen so far that uh, this is really a kind of a unique chapter. Last week and the week before, uh, we talked about, uh, it'll, really the chapter opened up laying out the mindset of why men try to change and corrupt the Word of God. Uh, we live in a time where, as I've told you many, many times, every, every period of church history has had some issue doctrinally that they, they had to struggle through. And the issues that uh, most people don't understand, that most people struggle with today, uh, have been really put to rest uh, a long time ago. And uh, these people don't know anything about the Bible, they don't know anything about history, they don't know the church, the true church, and how it worked through all these issues. So they struggle with it today because they really don't understand it. All of the fundamental issues that so many people struggle with today were put to rest many, many, many years ago as the church worked through them in each period of church history. I told you that the issue that we're all struggling with today in, 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 in the Laodicean church is the issue of, of uh, uh, the Word of God. Do you have the very words of God? Do you have a book that is trustworthy, that is absolute, that is perfect, that has no mixture of error in it, that is the very words from God to you? And that's really understanding the issue of our day. I think probably last week, when I ended, I gave you probably what singly what probably the greatest verse on the whole on the whole concept, and that's in Proverbs twenty two twenty one, where he simply talked about that I might make thee to know the certainty of the words of truth, and that's that's the bottom line. Do you know for certain that the Bible that you have are the words of truth? And uh, you know, the Bible says a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And for God to write one book who says uses words here one way and then uses them someplace else, that's a double standard in the mind of Christ. And of course, we know that can't be true. Uh, and of course, if you have them, uh, do you delight in them? And we talked about that last week. How that the man who wanted to corrupt the Word of God, uh, the Bible's nothing special to them. The Bible is nothing that's uh, any real uh, book other than just a, a book that, uh, uh, like every other book. So he feels free to correct it. And we saw a good look into the mindset of why men and, and men do that today. Now, our next set of verses today we're going to look at, we'll focus again on what the devil did, or is doing, uh, and they will become uh, the, what I call the secondary sins of the saints. You know, John chapter 8, verse 44 says, You're of your father the devil, and the lust of your father as you will do. And he lists those, those things that he does. And once we get saved, we know that we're free from the penalty of sin, but unfortunately we're not free from the presence of sin. And we have to still deal with our old sin nature. And within that old sin nature, you're going to find the residue of, of when you were of your father the devil. I've told you before, people who, uh, before they get saved, have a problem with lying and, 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 and cheating and things like that, that's going to be their biggest struggle. People who have problems with uh, drinking or alcohol or, or, or smoking or, or whatever. Whatever your fundamental problem was before you got saved, most likely is going to be your number one issue you've got to work on after you do get saved. And that's because the residue of that stays within your flesh. And, uh, you know... Um, I call these the sins of the saints. 
the, the, the fundamental issues that we have to deal with, the character traits that, we, that the devil had that he passed into us when we were in a fallen state, even though we get saved, that old sin nature, that old sin nature will, uh, will still carry some of those things that we have to deal with. The difference, somebody says, well, then what's the difference in getting saved? Here's the difference. Before you got saved, you had all these problems. You couldn't do anything about it. After you get saved, when God separates your soul from your, from your flesh and gives you the word of God, now you still may have the old flesh, but now you can get control of it and you can handle it. That's the difference. And, of course, that's what the Bible does for you. It does for it, you know, just that way. Now, our text today, Proverbs chapter 18, is going to be verses 8 through 12. So let's read it and uh, we'll, we'll talk about it. It says, The words of a talebearer are as wounds, and they go down into the innermost parts of the belly. He also that is slothful in his work is brother to him that is a great waster. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. The rich man's wealth is his strong city and as a high wall in his own conceit. Before destruction, the heart of man is haughty, but before honor is uh, humility. Aaron Crest, would you ask God's blessing on the service today? You know, this passage in the context of what we looked at last week, where it talks about a slanderer here, uh, someone who um, uh, is a talebearer. In the context, it will be actually talking about uh, somebody who's slandering of the Word of God. Uh, the Word of God, you know, nobody likes anybody to uh, say something about them that's not true. Uh, we all like the truth to be told about us. Sometimes the truth is not pleasant, but we still, it's better than lying about something. And, you know, we all, we all would rather have somebody tell us the truth about us to somebody than to lie about us or to slander us. And you know what? God is the same way. And when a person, within the context here, when, when a person corrupts the Word of God, he's taking the very words of God, the mind of God, what God is saying to you, and he is, he's being a talebearer. He's telling you that God, what he said wasn't true. He's slandering the character of God by saying something different. And this is how this passage, I just want you to understand it in its context, fits into uh, what we looked at last week. But there's a lot of things in here that, in a practical way that we want to look at. But I wanted to give you that first. It's a great passage. And it has a doctrinal application, which I, I just gave you. But it has some really good practical things, too. And we need to look at them today. Look at verse 8 here first. The words of a talebearer are as wounds, and they go down into the innermost part of the, of the belly. Now, as I said, in the context here, this again will be about uh, the devil and his crowd, the uh, yea hath God said society. But in the book of Proverbs chapter 6 verse 16, the Bible talks about six things that God hates. We've talked about it many, many times. It's not my, my, my plan to 
spent a lot of time on that today. We've talked about it many, many times. And we talk about how that in that passage, he says six, but there's actually seven. And what he says is he pulls the seventh one away from the six, puts six over here, one here, showing you that the seventh one is the capstone of all the things that the devil does. These seven things make up the character traits of the devil, how he operates, his mindset, the way he he goes through history and, and lays things out. And of course, the seventh one completes everything and makes it an abomination. Now, let me, let me give them to you very quickly here. The first one is a proud look. The second one is a lying tongue. The third one is hands that shed innocent blood. The fourth one is a heart that devises wicked imaginations. Uh, the fifth one is feet that be swift to run to mischief. The sixth one is a false witness that uh, speaketh lies. And the seventh one is he that soweth discord uh, among the brethren. Now, I told you how that the seventh one is the capstone. It's the abomination. It pulls everything else together with the other six. And when you come back and look at these, and I told you, these are the character traits of the devil. These are how these six, seven things are in operation all down through history and all down through the Bible. Let me show you what I mean. Now, let me watch these through these seven things and show you how they correspond with your whole Bible. Just very quickly. First of all, a proud look. We know that Genesis chapter 1, 1 and 1, 2. We know Ezekiel chapter 40, uh, 28 and Isaiah chapter 14. Pride was his problem. The second one is a lying tongue. That's Genesis chapter 3 where he said to Eve, Yea, hath God said, and then he lied about what God said. The third one is hands that shed innocent blood. That'll be Cain and Abel where Cain uh, killed Abel. Uh, the fourth one, heart devises the wicked imagination. That'll start up in Genesis 6 where the Bible says that all the imagination in man was totally wicked and that will run all the way up until the beginning of the law where God gives the nation of Israel the law. The fifth one uh, will be feet that swift to run to mischief. That will be from Exodus where they get the law up to Second Chronicles chapter 36. In uh, that time Israel chapter after chapter after book after book is running to mischief with Baal worship and departing from God. The next one Number six will be a false witness that speaketh lies. That'll bring us up to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. We know that there was false accusations against him. The Bible's filled with it. And we know that uh, they lied against him, made false accusations against him, and they got him crucified. The seventh one, the seventh one, which is the capstone, which makes all of the other six an abomination, is sowing discord among the brethren. That is your church age. That's the favorite sin of the saints in the church age. Showing discord among the brethren. That's it. So you see how the Bible puts all of those things together in an incredible way. An incredible way. In our text here in verse 8, it's talking about the words of a talebearer. And uh, uh, one that slanders through false accusations. And again, Revelation chapter 12, verse 10, talking about the devil in relationship to the nation of Israel. He's called the accuser of the brethren. You see a good example of that, uh, of, of the devil slandering and, and doing exactly what this proverb says when you go back to the early books of uh, chapters of Job, where the devil goes before God and accuses Job before God, slanders him, and, uh, and does all of the things that it says, a talebearer about Job. And it sets up for us, when you understand the fundamental context of it, it sets up some, for us some tremendous principles for us as God's people today uh, in a church age to better understand why things are the way they are. I'm, a, I'm somebody who's always had an investigative mind. I've always asked myself why things are the way they are. 
I, I, in people ministry, I've showed you many, many different things, and I've always told you to, the, the, if you see something that doesn't, you know, that old thing, it smells like Esau, but it, it feels like Jacob, or vice versa, however it was. And you always want to look at something and investigate it and see it uh, and understand it for what it is to the best of your ability. And, and when, you, when you get into situations uh, dealing with people, and it, you know, in these principles, you're going to find that, uh, uh, that uh, people are going to accuse you of things that you didn't do. People are going to slander you with things, and it helps you understand the mindset of having that mind that investigates, that looks and asks yourself, why are things the way they are today in the church? Why, in any given situation, what's wrong with this picture? And then understand the best of your ability so you don't wind up being deceived. John chapter 8 verse 44, I gave it to you earlier, says, Year of your father the devil, and the lust of your fathers ye will do. Now I know the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.17, If any man be in Christ, he's a new creature, old things are passed away, all things become new. I get that. But in the flesh, we still have that residue. Even though it's separated from your soul, and your soul is sealed, and you're going to heaven, you and I still got to deal with some things in this life. So, we see the main deception of the devil will always be uh, the major issue uh, for us and God's people. And we see that uh, these secondary sins, so to speak, that were there. And so, God's people today have a problem with pride. That's probably the number one problem that they have a problem with. The second thing that they, they have a problem with, we talked about it last week, is the Word of God. So they corrupt the Word of God. They lie about the Word of God. And then the third thing that they love to do is show discord uh, among the brethren. And, uh, and, and our verse says here today, the words of a talebearer are as wounds, and they go down deep into the innermost parts of the belly. Now, I've been around in the ministry for quite a while. And I've been around the talebearers for quite a while and the slanderers all my life. And I have seen the damage that, that they can do to people. And I can see what it, it, it happens to it. And uh, in my opinion, this is just my opinion now, a person who was a talebearer, and I understand, you know, I need to make it clear here. I know that when we work with people together, uh, you know the, the rules that we follow in people ministry. Uh, and I won't go through them this morning, but you know that, uh, that uh, we work together and all those things. So uh, there's times that we have to discuss somewhere where they're at, what they're dealing with, and all these things so we can help them. I'm not talking about that. But in my opinion, a person who is a legitimate talebearer, someone who is purposely slandering others to their hurt, there isn't any, any way they're trying to help anybody. They're trying to do what the devil tried to do to Job and all down through uh, the history of the Bible, try to do with Israel. Uh, one who purposely slanders others to their hurt. To me, it is the lowest form of cowardice on the planet. It's a person who cannot have the courage to face whoever they have a problem with. They don't have the, they don't have the courage to sit down and, and deal with whatever the issue may be. To me, it would suggest a man or a woman who is absolutely void of any character or courage or spiritual uh, you know, uh, perception in any way, shape, or form. They can't deal with anybody about it. All they do is, you know, you see it in the social media. The social media, you know, and I realize the Internet has a lot of good things on it. I get it. I get it. Uh, there's a things that you can use on there. It's an amazing tool. I get it. But it's like anything else in life. I'm not on social media. 
I, I don't have a face page or a, a face space or any of those things. Uh, people are sending me emails all the time. What, what's, your, what's, your, what's your face space place where you hang out or whatever those things? Your Twitter account or whatever. I don't even know what a Twitter is. I have no idea. Uh, I thought it was a, one of them, one of them soft drinks, you know, that, uh, but anyway. Uh, but social media is just filled with it. I mean, you've got people on there that just trash everybody everywhere they can. And it doesn't, you don't have to be a Donald Trump or you don't have to be somebody running for president that you tweet out messages. You can be just somebody out there in any church, in any, in any city, anywhere, who just gets on there and just throws up all over that thing. It's absolutely incredible. And, uh, you know, uh, it's filled with the venom of people who have, have to hide behind, in my, in my mind, hiding behind a computer keyboard and, and to get out what they've got to say instead of just facing the person and dealing with it. But that's what we're dealing with. Or sometimes it's in a secret little group, you know, you go out to lunch, and uh, I've been had for lunch so many times that probably it sticks in people's throats, you know, but, but it's a thing where, and you probably have to, people go out and you get the group of ladies going out, you know, they don't like something in the church, and they hack up everything and tear it apart and all that stuff, talk about this person, talk about that person. Or, you know, it's, a, it's a, wherever you spend time sowing discord. And, you know, the key to the church is unity. Key to Christianity is unity. Showing discord is ununifying the unity. It tears apart and destroys a single thing that everything in Christianity is built on. And that is unity. And the verse is quite graphic. Uh, and it really needs little commentary on it, even though I want to make some practical things out of it. Uh, fundamentally, a talebearer or a slander, uh, to put it in common everyday terms, is an assassin. They will assassinate a person's character. They will assassinate a person's uh, reputation behind their back without them ever, ever knowing it. You know, we, uh, in, the, in, the, in the military today, in our military world, world, we all are in awe of the concept of somebody that is a sniper. You know, and the special forces have their sniper training. The Marine Corps have their sniper school. And both, all the branches have a, have a school that is dedicated to teaching people how to be a sniper. And, of course, you a sniper is somebody who, who hides out one place and has a rifle with a telescopic sight on it and, and uh, can shoot people, you know. Uh, they all wear T-shirts, long-distance calling, the next best thing to being there, you know. And, and, uh, and they, 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 they get in a position where they can kill people at great distances. I think probably uh, the greatest sniper that probably ever lived was a Marine guy by the name of Charles Hathcock. Uh, most people don't know who he was, but uh, uh, there was a book written about him called One Shot, One Kill. And this was back, uh, you know, today we have very sophisticated sniper weapons. I mean, most of them are bolt action 50 calibers that shoot a round about that long, you know, it'll go 10 miles. And uh, you, you, can, you can hit anything you can see as far as you can see it. And they're very accurate. And, uh, you know, I, we all love to get onto YouTube and watch them over in Afghanistan and places. I've, I've watched them, you know, many times where they, they, they got a, the spotters got them on camera, you know, where this guy's looking over a rock someplace. And he's like 800 yards away, you know. And the guy's got a 50 caliber sniper rifle next to him. And all of a sudden you hear the gun go off and his head goes like a watermelon everywhere, you know. We, we all like that kind of stuff. If you like watermelon, uh, anyway. <laughs> But, uh, and, and so we like that. You know, we hear the stories today of, of men who were snipers, and we stay in awe of that. I can't remember the guy that just got killed, Chris somebody. Uh, he was a, huh? Who? Yeah, he was a sniper. And, uh, you know, great shot and all that stuff. And, but you know what? What you don't, most people don't know, 
that it's only been the last 40, 50 years where being a sniper has been accepted? You know, for a long time, somebody in the military who was a sniper was, was separated from the rest of the military. They looked at them as cowards. They had snipers in the Civil War. They had snipers in World War I. They had snipers in World War II, up through Korea. But even in Vietnam, many times the men who were the snipers were looked at with disdain because of the other, uh, other troops, because of the way that they shot somebody. Uh, for a long time, and it's not much today, but for a long, long time, there was, a, there was rules to warfare. Most people don't know this, and it, there was rules to warfare. I mean, back in, the, back in the 1800s, in Europe when they fought, it, it, it was, it was, it's, it's comical. They'd meet on the battlefield at 8 o'clock in the morning, they'd fight to 5, and then they'd all take off and go home and eat. They had hours to the fighting. The joke in, the German, in Germany is, in case of rain, the war will be held in the auditorium, you know. <laughs> there, was a, there was a chivalry to it. In World War I, when they're flying their little biplanes, and von Richter and all those guys, uh, and uh, they, were, they, they, they didn't do anything. I mean, it was, they, was, they were gentlemen about it. And you know what? He'd, he'd, he'd shoot a guy, and, and the guy would be, would not, was, was dying or everything, and, and he'd fly up alongside him. He'd salute him. You know, if they're in a dog fight someplace and the guy runs out of ammunition, then the other guy won't shoot him down because it's, it's, it's not cricket. There's no chivalry to it. There were times when they would shoot down a German plane or an American plane that they would fly over the next day and drop a wreath on it. But see, the war was different back then. There was times back in World War I and World War II that on Christmas Eve, they were killing each other just 200 yards away in the, in the fortifications, and they, they, they made a peace for Christmas, and they're in the middle of the battlefield where 20 minutes ago they were killing each other. They're sitting out there sharing their link sausage and their K-rations and everything and singing Christmas hymns together, and then the next morning they're back killing each other. I mean, it's a, it, it, so being a sniper back then was not accepted. They were kind of shunned as being someone who was a coward in the way they killed people. And that's all changed now. And it's accepted now. But in truth, in Christianity, the weapon of choice for the sniper who wants to slander you will be their tongue. And it's likened to a weapon, a sword in Psalm 57, 4, and Psalm 64, 3. Psalm 57, 4 says, My soul is among lions, and I lie even among them that are set on fire. Even the sons of men whose teeth are spears and arrows, and their tongue a sharp sword. Psalm 64, 3 says, Hear my voice, O God, in my prayer. Preserve my life from fear of the enemy. Hide me from the secret counsel of the wicked. There's your little meetings together. There's your little lunches. From the insurrection of workers of iniquity, who wet their tongue like a sword. That means wet means to sharpen it. Who wet their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to shoot their arrows, even bitter words. You see that? They're snipers. And they get in a hidden position to assassinate your character. Now, historically, that's all talking about David. And boy, they, a lot of people were after him and said a lot of things about him. Doctrinally, that's all Christ on the cross. Because they said a lot of things about him. But inspirationally, it's you and me. So you begin to see how this verse. Verse 8 says that like a wound going down deep into your belly. 
I don't know you know much about it, but the worst kind of wound that you can get, other than one that's a fatal wound, or right out of the box, like shot in the head or someplace, but the greatest wound that you can have is a belly wound. Because you all, especially many times in World War II when they flew those missions, the guys didn't even eat breakfast before they went. Simply because of the fact that they know if they got a belly wound, uh, the bullet going in and ripping their stomach open with everything that's in there, plus all of the stuff, it just would be septic. And it just, it, it, it's a very, very, very uh, bad wound. And, and you know, and uh, in the Bible, the belly is always a picture of our emotion stability. And, uh, and so when it says it talks about going down deep into the belly, you know, things people slander you with will, and have a deep impact on your emotions if you, if you allow it to have. Uh, this sword, their tongue, uh, used in tail-bearing or slander, not only lacerates the skin uh, and, and draws blood, but it, it also pierces the vitals of the, of, of, of the victim and, and cuts them deep inside them emotionally, just like a, a real sword. And, uh, you know, you can be in a situation where you're having a great day, you're enjoying everything, uh, you're just looking forward to having lunch or looking forward to having dinner or whatever, and you can get one phone call, and you're sick the rest of the night. You don't want to eat now. Your stomach is churning over. And yet, whatever they said on the phone had nothing to do with your stomach. But in the Bible, your belly is likened to your emotions, and it says that slander goes down deep. It cuts deep. There's a lot of things that cut deep. A lot of things that will affect the person emotionally. You know, in the Bible, and, and here's your first little, if you want to get this in your, a study and get it in your Bible, here's the first one. There's a couple of them here we're going to look at. Uh, there's two swords in the Bible. In Hebrews chapter 4, verses 12 and 13, you have a sword that is the Word of God. And that one cuts, but it, and it divides asunder, but it divides and cuts asunder in a good way. It cuts and divides asunder your soul from your flesh. And so their first sword is the word of God, and it does cut, and it does divide, but it does it in a good way. The second sword is found in Psalm 57, 4, and Psalm 64, 3, and that's the devil's people who their tongue is like a sword, and it cuts and divides you from the fellowship with God and his people. One is used to, to strengthen you, the other one is used to destroy you. It's just that simple. And that's why the Bible talks about, listen, there's many a person out of church today completely, won't go to church anywhere. And they're broken and they're hurting all because some dear saint of God went to work on them with the sword of their mouth instead of going to work on them with the sword of the spirit. And it's destroyed them. People by what they do, sometimes by what they, or certainly by what they say, but by time what they do, have no idea that how you can destroy somebody. I've seen men and women destroyed of serving God just because of something somebody said to them or something somebody did to them. Because it's such a, it's such a deep wound. Especially if it's somebody you think that's your friend. One of the greatest passages in the Bible is over there about Christ. And somebody says, uh, what are these wounds? And he says, these are the wounds that I got in the house of my friends. Now when your friends deceive you, they wound you. They go down deep. And it's a, it's, a, it's a thing that you're either going to uplift somebody with a sword of the word of God, or you're going to slice them up with the tongue of your mouth of what you say. Cut them to pieces. Now, you've got to know this. 
and I hate to say this, but it's true. I wish I could just say that what I'm preaching about is only going to happen to a, a, a few people out there who deserve it. But that's not true. Let me tell you something. You need to know this for sure. Few people in life will ever escape the sword of somebody's mouth. I can guarantee you, maybe you're just a young Christian trying to get on your feet, trying to get going. I'm going to tell you right now, you will not escape it. You older ones that have been around for a while, you know exactly what I'm talking about. I know exactly what I'm talking about. I've experienced it too. And I'm telling you, it's a, there's nothing more emotionally unsettling and makes you sick to your stomach than being cut to pieces by what somebody says about you that isn't true or does to you. And, you know, if you ever decide to get into the ministry, whether it's here or any place else, you need to get prepared for it. I tell people all the time, especially in the people ministry, the work of God is not for thin-skinned people. Because you will not escape this, especially if you get into working with people. Listen, people will always look to blame you for their failures. They certainly will. They can make the biggest mess out of their life, and at the end of the day, it'll be somehow your fault. You'll pour yourself into somebody, you'll trust them, they'll, they'll, you'll try to help them, you'll do everything you can for them, and you'll give them everything you got. And uh, they'll wind up, in time, tearing you apart. It's just the way it goes. It's just the way it is. And, and the quicker you learn that great lesson, the better off you're going to be. And it's so true. In the ministry, it's just, it's just it'll happen hundreds of times if you stay in it and you do the work of God. That's just the way it is. As you grow spiritually and you mature and you get used of God and you, uh, and, and, you know, and, uh, and some of you will, some of you have, some of you are. You always want to remember the number one personal rule of the ministry of growing spiritually. And I don't say this rule to impede your growth spiritually. I want you to be everything that God wants you to be. But there's some things that you need to understand if you're going to grow spiritually and let God use you. And I, I'm not very flowery with words. I don't know a lot of big uh, $25 words to make things sound uh, impressive. I just talk to you just like, like you can understand it. And the greatest personal rule that you need to understand that you're going to get nailed in the ministry is simply this. It's a simple concept. The higher you go up the ladder of maturity spiritually and the higher you go up the ladder of dealing to people, the bigger target your rear end is. And they're going to take a shot at it. A tailbearer, without a doubt, the greatest coward that you ever meet. They can never be man or woman enough to face the people they're against squarely, only behind their backs. You know, in life, for me personally, there are some things that I, I rank down below even where the sewer rats live, with all the muck and the mire of a sewer. And certainly someone who is a slanderer and someone who is someone who, who goes out to hurt people with what they say, especially when those people have hurt them or do something to somebody uh, that somebody has poured their life into them. It's, it's the pretty lowest thing that a person can do. Look at verse 9. He also that is slothful uh, in his work is brother to him that is a great waster. Now, within our context, this is so true. People who talk about others get so consumed with their slander and their tail bearing that they never go and get anything else done. I mean, that's what it's saying. 
But yet there's another great practical thing to this that I want to see. When a person wastes anything in life, no matter what it is, it will be all be connected with what they focus on in life. Or what they don't focus on, I should say. You know, the greatest aspect of, of that we waste, in my mind, uh, will, will be time. Time is the number one thing that we probably waste more than anything else. And, uh, you know, Psalms 90, verse 10 through 12 says that man's life is three score and ten. And he says in some cases somebody gets an extension of life, but if they do, uh, it's just trial, heartaches, and problems. He says the bottom line for man is that the average is three score and ten, 70 years. Which means I got four years left. Do you ever stop and think about that? Bible says in Psalm chapter 90, verses 10 and 12, it says, based on that, it says, so teach us to number our days that we may apply our hearts unto wisdom. There's something about time that God wants us to know. And the reason why he wants us to know it is because the number one thing that we waste as God's people is time. Now, I'm not saying you should be a monk. I'm not saying you should not have any fun and just do the ministry 24 hours a day. I mean, you got people out there like that. They are the most boring, meanest people you ever met in your life. Because as an old Chinese proverb said, no work and no play make Jack a dull boy. I'm not sure that's Chinese, but I think that he ate at a Chinese restaurant one time when he said that. And, and it's so true. But we need to stop and number our days and, 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 and apply our hearts to wisdom. Let me, let, me see you when I, let me tell you what I'm talking about. Now that Bible says that we all got 70 years. Let's just say we all do. Say we're all going to die at 70. I'll take my own self for an example. I didn't get saved until I was 20. So now, out of that 70 years, I only got 50 years left. And, and I tell you all the time, I tell you all the time that uh, I'm glad you're here and everything, but you know what? It takes you about five years to really get on board and learn everything and get all your stuff squared away where you really, I'm not saying you can't be affected, but where you really start to dial in and get infected. So now you're down to 45 years. Most people don't stop and realize this, but we sleep in a lifetime of 70 years. We sleep 15 years of that. So now you're down to 30 most people don't even stop and consider this. In a lifetime of 70 years, you eat six years of that. Some people in one day. <laughs> but now you're down to 24. You count vacations, ball games, social events, all the things we do, and they're okay things. Not to mention the time they were out of fellowship. You know what you got? Probably 10, 15, maybe 20 years to give God out of your life of 70. Now see, that is applying your hearts unto wisdom. That is numbering your days. And most people, God's people, uh, they're so into themselves that they never stop and, and number their days. They never apply them, their hearts unto wisdom. They never take the Word of God and really look at it in that way or figure out how, uh, how, how to do anything else. And, and time is the biggest asset that we have in ministry. 
and, and, and we wasted most of our lives. And, and obviously, uh, we have people, so you're, not, so you're not down and despondent. And I know I can just read some people's minds right now. Some of you probably come into church here and you're 40 years old or you're 50 years old. And you're saying, man, I only got 20 years left if I'm 50 and I'm going to die at 70. Um, and so he put the pencil to it and you just figured out you got 20 seconds left, you know. <laughs> You know, it's always good to have somebody in your life that always covers the bases for you. You know that? You know, in life, as a human being, God will put somebody special in your life that when you're having issues and you're having struggles and you're having times, that they'll just be that special person to always get you everything you need and cover the bases for you. Amen. But in the greatest spiritual way, you know who that is? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he's just told us that we're to number our days and apply our hearts unto wisdom. He just said man's life is three score and ten seventy. And I just put the downside to it and showed you you only got 15, 20 years left. And you may have come into this church and you may be 40, 50, maybe 60 years old. And you may be sitting there sweating bullets right now thinking you're a failure in life. But I want to tell you something. And you can't do anything for God. But this is the beauty of God who covers all my bases for me. Just like we got to cover the bases of others. Because yet in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 16, with all of our sin and all of our stupidity and all of our problems and all of the time that we waste, you know what he says? He tells us that God has made a way for us to redeem the time. Amen. You can redeem the time that you've lost. If you're sitting here this morning and you're 50 years old and you're, you're thinking to yourself, man, I got 20 years left. And boy, based on an analogy that Bob gave me, I am in deep trouble. Well, you may have wasted a lot of your life, but the place God, he covers all the bases and he made a way for you and me to redeem the time that you don't wind up with the judgment seat of Christ empty. Say that real loud for me. Thank you. I'll tell you. Hey, you know, it's things like that that, that that make you love people that love you so much that they're willing to, to, to do all, what they got to do to help you be successful. And that's what makes you love God even more every day. Some people who just don't get it. Well, I don't know why you can love God the way you do. I don't know why some people can just love God all the time. You know, I got so many things in my life. You don't have a clue. The reason why you love him because he does things just like this. He never, never, never does not cover my bases. And when you become the man or the woman God wants you to be and you look at the people that God has put in your world, you'll do the same thing. you do the same thing. The greatest gift to us is that God is the time that God allows us to do His work. The greatest gift that God gives us is the time that He allows us in our sinful condition, that He cared enough to come down and save us, to orchestrate our lives in a better fashion, that we can now take every moment that we can take and understand and give to Him. The greatest gift to us is the time God allows us to do His work. You know, one of the greatest passages in the Bible on the second coming of Christ over there in Matthew chapter 20 is all built around time. When Jesus was on his earthly ministry, he kept saying over and over again, mine hour has not yet come. It was about time. And for you and for me, we waste the time that God gives us. And the greatest gift to us that we have as Christians is the time that he's allowed us. He's given us a season. The past is gone, can never be retrieved. 
The future is not here yet. What you have is the gift of this very moment. And I guess that's why they call it the present. The gift that God has given you to serve Him in this hour of your life. In every day of your life, when you wake up tomorrow morning, you get a fresh, brand new 24-hour period that's called a day. In which we do the work of God knowing that His day is coming. The day of Jesus Christ. Our time that we serve God is counted toward a day. The rapture of the church when we give an account for our time. Israel's time is up against the day. The day of the Lord. When they'll give an account to God for their time that God gave them. It's time. The Bible says that he that is slothful in work is brother to him that is a great waster. The second thing that is a great waste in Christianity will be money. Isaiah 55, 2 says, Wherefore do you spend money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which satisfieth not? Hearken diligently unto me, and eat ye that which is good, and let your soul delight itself in fatness. What do you spend money for which is not bread? Now, I, I know here again, I'm not somebody standing up here saying that every dime and every dollar you got needs to go to the Lord's work and you, you, uh, you, uh, you, you suffer for it. I'm not saying that. I've actually known a lot of Christians when they get, first got saved. I had a young guy years and years ago, and he was a zealous kid, and he was a nice kid. But, you know, he was just zeal not according to knowledge. He made an appointment to come in and see me, and he had a decent job. And he says, I want you to know, he says... Uh, he says, the Bible says that uh, the tithe belongs to the Lord, and that's 10%, and then we can keep 90. He says, I'm so thankful for what God did for me. I want you to know what I'm going to do. I'm going to give God my 90, and I'm going to live off the 10. Well, I can appreciate that, but you know what? That's not realistic. You know how I know it's not realistic? If it was realistic, that's what God would have told you to do. But I appreciate something like that, but it ain't going to work. God doesn't expect you to not have a, a, a nice car or a nice house. God doesn't expect you not to go out and see something you like and, and buy it. And God doesn't, doesn't think you should not have things that, you know, you want to have a, uh, you know, a CD player or, or a cassette, cassette player. They don't have cassettes anymore. <laughs> Those are really cheap, by the way, now. I told you years and years and years and years and years and years and years ago, I had everything that Ruckman ever did uh, on his cassette, on his, every book of the Bible, the, the years before he ever put anything in print. And that's where I really learned the Bible. Those tapes are 40, 45 years old. We're now in the process of trying to put them on, uh, some of the guys are working to put them on CD so we can have a library here to do it. And I was talking to Aaron the other day. He came over and got a load of them and he said, he called me up very sorry. He says, man, he says, you know what? He says, I'm getting all the stuff off, but every time I rewind them, the tape breaks because it just, it just snaps off the end, and, and, and now we, we lost it. I said, did you get it? He said, oh, I get it, but he said, I ruined your tape. And I said, you know what? Those tapes are 45, almost 50 years old. I said, do you expect them to last forever? As long as you got it, don't worry about it. And those things are old, man. Those things are old. And I, I remember going through those things, you know, and, and, and looking at them and, 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 and just pouring over those. And, and they were the, some of the greatest material uh, you, ever, you ever had in your life. 
and it's a it's a thing where you know it's okay to spend money on things it's okay it's, it, it, this is not a church I'm not a pastor that says that you you know there are some churches where they, if you drove in in a jaguar they'd be all over you hey if you can if you can afford a jaguar you're welcome to it man I mean they eat a lot but if you can have one you know <laughs> do it So let me, let me say what I'm telling you. In Christianity today, we think that bigger is better. And we think that if it costs a lot, then that makes it even better. It's a lot like spending $100 million on a building when you could get along with just buying a butler builder and get everything you want for $10 million. What you could do in ministry with that $90 million thing? It's the difference of going out into church buying a $300,000 sound system when you can get one for $10,000. It'll do everything you want to do. I can guarantee you, ours did not cost $10,000. <laughs> In Christianity, we like, we, we like to set a style. We like to look like we're slick. We want people to be impressed. And today in the latest in church, people are impressed by what they see. Not so much what they hear. So if we have a big church that has a grandioso auditorium, big screens all around the thing, people, people are really amazed. Did you ever watch Joe Osteen on, on, on Sunday morning or whenever he's on? You ever notice that he's in that cathedral stadium, whatever that was down there that he's got now? You ever notice that some people are six miles away and when you're sitting way at the back or on the sides he looks he, up on the stage he just looks like a little guy up there but he's they got him blasted on these big screens I mean his face is blown up like 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 kind of like this <laughs> you know he, he fills the whole thing people get him in awe of that it's a very subtle thing you can't hardly see him but there he is big as life bigger than life and people think, man, this is where God's at because God is big like that. That's, that's, that's how people think. That's exactly how they think. And they, they want to be slick, you know, so they have see-through podiums. They'll have their message on a teleprompter like some politician. And you're standing, he's walking around talking and, and going through this great delivery on a sermon, this great detail, and there are people out there saying... Man, he really knows the Word of God. He's got this whole... How does he memorize those sermons every Sunday? He doesn't. He's reading them off the thing right on that deal. But he wants you to think he is. I kind of used to do the same thing when I was a young preacher. I, I, when I make my sermons, I'd write them. Now they're, they're kind of that size, you know. But early on, I used to write them real big. And I didn't have all the volume of what I kind of know now to draw off of. So I'd have to write it real big. So when I'd run by the pulpit, I could grab something as I was going by, you know, <laughs> and see it. They, <laughs> they want to appear to be very slick, professional. Their suits probably cost more than your grocery bill for a month, maybe two months. They all got them microphones that go over there to come around like that. 
nothing like this. They would never have their shirt wrinkled like I have to have mine done. <laughs> no, they get those things and it comes around there. And, it's, and I, I got to tell you the truth. I, it looks slick. I mean, that's, I mean, it's almost like you're, an, you know, you're an astronaut or something. You're a fighter pilot. You got that little mic key around there. But it's all designed. And it's all a lot of money spent that It doesn't sound any better. It doesn't work any better. It just gives the appearance because it costs a lot that it must be better. You know, organizations are famous for asking for donations, you know, for a worthy cause. And people that give to it. You know, a guy gives $100 to an organization, relief organization, or whatever. And then you find out that out of that $100, a dollar goes to really to the help of the people. And 99 of it goes to the structure of salaries and things that you got to have. Churches don't need restaurants, though we have one out there in the lobby. Gary brings it in every Sunday. <laughs> they don't need Starbucks, though we have a mechanical version of it on Thursday night. They don't need fitness centers, racquetball courts. They just need the Bible and what God provided for them and being satisfied with it. There's people who would look at this church and laugh at the way we are down here. There's people who would never set foot of this church because to them we're not a real church. I've had people tell me that. Because we don't have our own building and because we don't have, you know, all of the things that go on that uh, they actually think that a real church is the structure that you have. Let me tell you something. I can send you some churches that have really nice structure and you'll find out very quickly they're not a church. But that's where we're at today. I love this place. Amen. I mean, I, it's, it's, it's by heart and soul. Uh, I mean, it's, we've all put our blood, sweat, and tears in this place. I mean, I, I'd hate to leave this place. I'd hate to lose this place. And someday it may happen, but I, 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 it, I, 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 I'm so comfortable here. If I die, God forbid, or God willing, however it works out, if, if, if I die, my funeral, I want right here. Right here, right where I preached, right where I've, we've worked it out, right where we put out the Word of God, right here, right here. And the only ones I want here are the ones that uh, uh, I already got the list made, oh, everybody in the church, and, and the ones that I want to come, everybody else, there won't be enough room. Uh, we don't want, uh, we don't want a, a bunch of people just coming in and saying, well, I'm glad he's dead. <laughs> there were probably more of them here than you at that point in time, but that's okay. Look at verse 10. The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. Now here's another little study that you'll want to put in your Bible. There are two fundamental towers in the Bible. I don't know if you know that or not. There's two fundamental towers in the Bible for you to examine and for you to study. They both represent two different things. The first one is the Tower of Babel. You'll find out in Genesis chapter 10 and 11. The Tower of Babel will, will represent the man-made system of the world. Not only in religion, but in everything. When they built that tower, if you'll remember, their, 
their claim and their desire was that the top would reach unto heaven. They were trying to get to God through that tower. So that represents the world system. The second tower in the Bible was the Tower of the Lord. Or a strong tower. Sometimes it's called the Tower of David. That's God's system. So if you want to take a study or have a little devotion or do something, I've given you two great illustrations to be able to do that. And in, a power, in the Bible, a power will be a picture of a couple of different things. In Isaiah chapter 3, verse 16, in a worldly sense, the tower represents the neck of man and, you know, the will of man. Or, in, like in Song of Solomon chapter 4, verse 4, it'll represent a, a man or a Christian or a woman who, who uh, their, their head is bowed in, in, in the will of God. Um, I saw the uh, lesson that you did the other day, uh, for this morning on, uh, uh, and you asked a question, why, uh, why people bow their heads and close their eyes when they pray? What do you think about that? And that, that's a great question. And as I thought about that, I thought to myself, you know, the answer to that is probably as many as anybody wants to give it because everybody's got their own opinion on it. It's a great question. I thought to myself, to me personally, now, I know you don't have to close your eyes and bow your head to, to pray. And the Bible says pray without ceasing. You can pray while you're driving your car, but I would not suggest that you close your eyes and bow your head. <laughs> it may be the last thing you see or do. But, you know, and I know that everybody has their own, uh, their own thing that they want to say on that and why they do that. But for me personally, you see, I have to look at the world all the time and see everything in the world out there 24-7. When I talk to God, I just like to have a time when I close my eyes and I, don't, I shut out the world and I don't see anything but Him. It helps me. And, you know, and I you know that people, you know, say, well, you bow your head for reverence, you bow your head out of respect. I get all that. But for me personally, my neck, based on the Bible, is my pride. Stiff-necked. And for me, when I bow my head and I lower my head, I'm bowing my will to God. That I'm not looking at anything but Him. And my pride and my will is at anything but what He wants me to be. And it's a, it's a thing where that's what a tower represents. Stiff-necked. Somebody proud, their head's up like that. You know why guys hunt in deer stands? A couple of reasons. Animals, for whatever reason, as they go through the woods, they never look up. They always look straight or they look down. If you're sitting on the ground and a deer will see you, but if you're in a deer stand, unless you're up there dancing or something and got your headset on with a loud boombox, he'll never see you. He'll walk right underneath the deer stand and he'll never, he'll never look up and say, well, that's a strange looking squirrel. <laughs> He never will. Only man lifts his head in defiance to God. The animals never do. They never do. The strong tower. So it's likened to the will of man. Or the will of God. Psalms 18 verse 1 and 2 says, I will love thee, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my strength in whom I will trust, my buckler and the horn of my salvation and my high tower. Psalm 61.35 calls it a strong tower. One of the greatest studies in the Bible is the tower of God in your life. Song of Solomon 4.4 is called the Tower of David. And that 
called David because the key to David's life and him being a tall, strong guy with God was his relationship with the Word of God. Now, three things God's tower represents and will do for you and for me based on this passage here. First of all, it protects you. It gets you to the high ground where the enemy can't get to you. In combat, you're taught if you've got to fight a battle and you've got to defend a position and you've got to decide where you're going to fight, you've got to have two things going for you to be successful. And it doesn't necessarily mean how many you have to have more men than they have, but you've got to have these two things. First of all, you've got to know the ground you're fighting on. Fighting on ground that you're not aware of or you don't know the terrain will get you killed. And it's the same way in Christianity. If you're going to fight the spiritual battle, you have to know the terrain you're fighting on. You have to know your enemy. And the second thing, you have to have the high ground. You have to defend the high ground. You make that enemy come up that hill to you. You don't want to go up the hill to him. You make him, you make him slog up that hill while you're pouring fire down on him. Instead of you trying to slog it up while he's pouring fire down on you. You get those two things going for you, and you got 20 guys, and 200 men are coming up that hill, you'll win. You'll take the day. You'll take the day. The high ground is always the key. And as a Christian, I have the tower of God in my life, and I'm in a position that my enemy cannot get to me. In your hymnal, right there in your lap or underneath your chair, page 308. Great song, Higher Ground. Lord, lift me up and let me stand by faith on heaven's stable land. A higher plane that I have found. Lord, plant my feet on higher ground. That's the tower. That's the tower. Now, I'll tell you the second thing it does for you. It allows me to live above the circumstances that I'm going through. I get an elevated position by what I see from all the angles of what's out there coming my way. <clears throat> Again, it's the deer, steer, deer stand concept. If you're just going to sit under a tree or sit in the woods someplace, you only have a one-dimensional view of things. That's straight out. But when you get into a deer stand and elevate it up 10, 15 feet, your dimensions change. Now you have a perspective. Now you can see distance, you can see left, you can see right. <clears throat> you have all of the perspectives that you need to be in an elevated position that that would give you, <clears throat> that being on the ground doesn't give you. And that's why you use deer stands. For a Christian, the average Christian lives in a three-dimensional world. You'll find this in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18. <clears throat> He lives in a world with height, he lives in a world with length, and he lives in a world with breadth. That's, that's how you measure something in its, in, its, uh, in its dimension. And then it tells you in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 18, <coughs> that there's a Christian, <coughs> there's a fourth dimension. And that dimension is depth. You take the first three that are human, that we can see and understand some things in life, and then you add the fourth one to it, comes from the Word of God, which is depth, you'll see everything in life. That's the tower. That's the tower. The third thing, as I've already made a reference to this, that man's neck is likened to a tower. 
Isaiah chapter 3, verse 16. Talked about somebody walking around with stretched forth necks. That's his will, stiff-necked. Where my tower is a strong tower, I'm talking about a guy who, who puts his will over God's will. The breaking of my will over God's will will always be a picture of, of my bowing my head and my neck coming down in reverence to God. In Exodus chapter 13, verse 13, you find that it says back there that the, and we know that in the Bible, uh, an ass uh, is a un- picture of an unsaved man. <clears throat> and it says back in Exodus chapter 13, verse 13, <clears throat> that, the, uh, that the firstlings of, of the ass, when she had, when the, uh, she had uh, the babies, that the firstlings of an ass had to be redeemed with a lamb. And if that was not redeemed with a lamb, you know what they had to do? Had to break his neck. Picture of man's will. Over there in Mark chapter 11, verse 7, in Matthew chapter 21, you have, I have a message, I've never really preached it to you, but it's called the unwritable ass. It's where Jesus goes into Jerusalem. And the Bible says that when it was time to go in, they had a mama ass and a fool of the colt, a baby ass, and they bring him over, and nobody ever really thought about this. They bring him over, and there's the big, <laughs> the big animal. <laughs> And the smaller animal. <laughs> and Jesus chooses to ride the full of the ass instead of the full grown mama. And people read that, look at it, never even think about it twice. How it all figures into the scheme of things. That ass is a picture of an unshaved man. And in that particular story there, when you go back to Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 24, that ass that's unbroken is a picture of the nation of Israel. So he chooses not to ride the ass because that's Israel unbroken. He chooses to ride the fool of the colt, which is the picture of the church, where he's going. And you will not get that out of the Greek and the Hebrew. Verse 11 says, the rich man's wealth is his strong city and has a high wall in his own conceit. Verse 12 says, before destruction, the heart of man is haughty and before honor is humility. Now, these two verses are great verses. Verse 11 says, the foolish man will trust in his riches. And of course, if you look at Luke chapter 12, verse 21 and 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 through 15, it, it, it makes it very clear that somebody's loving money and the root of all evil is money and somebody that layeth up treasure for himself is not rich toward God. So you have all of that. But to this man, you see, he's talking about here, uh, the wisdom of the world, which is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, a single tower... Just a tower out there, the Tower of David, a strong tower, Tower of the Lord. To that man, a single tower looks completely vulnerable to the enemy's attack. 
he feels much safer and secure inside his man-made, man-built, man-sanctioned fortress with all its high walls. In his pride, he thinks that what he has accomplished as in a mast is better than what God has to offer. He thinks because he's built his riches or his strong city and what he's trusting in, how foolish it is for me to put all my trust in one tower. And yet he does not understand, because he has no wisdom, before destruction the heart of man is haughty, and before honor is humility. And let me tell you something, in his strong-built, man-made fortifications, when the enemy comes, they'll come over those walls like ants at a picnic. And he'll not stop them. The proud man will not humble himself to run to the tower of God. And verse 10 says, The name of the Lord is a strong tower. The righteous runneth into it and is safe. The proud man won't do that. His neck is stiff. He's haughty. He's following his own will instead of God. He will not run to the tower of God. He will not flee to that tower from the wrath to come. And in the day of judgment, he will find out that that was the only tower above all the embattlements that man could make. That tower, that strong tower, the Tower of David. A strong tower whose foundation was on solid rock, not on sinking sand. A tower whose stones that make up its structure are like granite. than stones cut without hands in Daniel chapter 2. A tower that no devil, Satan himself, no power, no principality, no rulers of darkness could ever breach. Ephesians chapter 6. A tower so high that you can see the enemy coming long before he gets to you. A tower so strong that no weapon ever forged by man could ever bring it down. Isaiah 54, 17 says, No weapon that is formed against thee shall prosper, and every tongue that shall rise against thee in judgment thou shalt condemn. It is the, it is the Lord and the, and the servants of the Lord and the, and, the, and the righteousness of me. No weapon. A tower so safe, your whole family can live in comfort and peace without ever having to fear what's on the outside of that tower. The tower, the high tower, the tower of David in your life. You say, how high is it? How high is this tower? How can it be that high that nobody can ever scale the walls, climb up it? How high is this high tower? Colossians 3, verses 1, 2, and 3. If ye then be risen with Christ, cease those things which are above, where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affections on things above and not on things of the earth. For you are dead, and your life is hid with Christ. Ephesians 2, 6 says, I am seated in heavenly places with Christ Jesus. That's how high it is. That tower's top reaches all the way up to heaven to the throne of God, and you're seated up there with Him, and nobody can get you. Some tower you got. Now let me talk to you for just a second about <clears throat> the process of building a strong tower in your life. I would be greatly admiss if I gave you all of this and didn't tell you how to do it. The first thing you have to do is have a good foundation. We know in 1 Corinthians chapter 3 that that's salvation. The Bible says that you get saved, the day you get saved, you lay a foundation in your life. That foundation is the day you trusted Christ, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. The second thing 
Once you have that foundation, you're told to be a wise master builder. In other words, there's some things that you want on that foundation, and there's some things that you don't. <coughs> you grow, come to church, <coughs> get into your Bible, you find out what those things are. The second thing is the building material. The blocks of stone, which will be individual Bible principles, Bible doctrines, you place wisely on that foundation. Isaiah chapter 28, verses 9 and 10 says, to whom shall he teach knowledge, and to whom shall he make to understand doctrine? Them that are weaned from the milk and drawn from the breast, somebody that's a young Christian. Now here's your process. For precept must be upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. Then you build on that foundation one course at a time, one block at a time, and those blocks are precepts, they're principles, they're Bible doctrines. And the more Bible doctrine you learn, you put them on that foundation, and it builds itself into a tower. And the reason why they can't get through you is not because the wall bricks are so strong, though they are. We're talking spiritually now. The reason why nobody can get penetrate those walls to get to you, because those walls are truth. Those walls are biblical principles that are truth. And because they're truth, untruth can never penetrate them. So you build your life on truth. You build your relationships on truth. You build everything you do on truth. <clears throat> and you realize that truth is the only fundamental concept in this world that everything has to rise and fall on. You don't have it, you got nothing. So when you don't have a Bible, you got nothing. In our church, <clears throat> And I understand our church is like any other church. It's, it's far from perfect. It's got its problems like every other church does. I get it. I understand that. But there's one major difference. Everything we do here, whether it's Sunday morning, Thursday night, the people ministry, single ministry, the one-on-one -on -one with me or the people that you work with and here in this church that help you, the classes, the special classes that we have, everything, everything has one goal. And that is to give you the principles, the precepts, and the doctrines to build your own strong tower for you and your family. That when times come, and they will come. When the slanderers come, and they will come. When all the forces of hell come down around you, and they will. When that phone call comes in, and you get that sick feeling in your stomach. When you think that something went one way, and it actually went somewhere else, and somebody lied about you and slandered to you, you found out to somebody that you love so deeply and was close to you, betrayed you, and, 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 and all of those things that go along with it, and that comes down. It's the strong tower that's always going to get you through. Yes. It's just that simple. You have, sitting here today, you have two towers to choose from. You have the Tower of Babel, or you have the Tower of David. There's never a third one. That's all you have. But the Tower of David is enough. It's enough.